Good morning, Missio. So good to be with you this morning. Um, today's scripture reading is Matthew 6, 1 through 24. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Amen. Well, welcome everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, every week I have said that we are in the Sermon on the Mount, and then Haley pointed out that there's a giant screen behind me that tells you exactly what we're doing, but in case you don't know how to read, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout this series, what we have been doing is exploring what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. These words that Jesus gives us in this sermon are his vision, his understanding his imagination for what it looks like to be his people, what it looks like to participate in his coming kingdom, and what it looks like to follow his way. In the last two sections, Jesus has been showing us that the ultimate purpose, the ultimate direction, the ultimate orientation of the Christian life is to love God, love others, and love ourselves. Matthew 22, Jesus says, all the law, all the prophets, everything you understand hangs on these two commands. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and the second is like it, to love others as you love yourself. 
And so through these sections, Jesus has been showing us what it looks like to love this way. And I think there is an impulse when we hear that the Christian way or the orientation of our hearts or the Jesus way, when we hear that it is about love, it can be tempting to think that is sentimental or that it's weak or that it's ineffectual. But what Jesus has shown us the last couple of weeks is that if we think his love is ineffectual or small, we have no idea what kind of love we're dealing with. The love that Jesus is displaying and teaching us about is a kind of love that overcomes all barriers, a kind of love that says no to revenge before it can spiral and develop, a kind of love that divests of power and privilege in order to dignify another, a kind of love that imagines enemies might be made friends in the same way that we have been made friends of God. The kind of love that we are hearing about in this sermon is world-changing, kingdom-emerging, Jesus kind of love. And the best part about the Sermon on the Mount is that we are invited to experience in our most inner being this kind of love and to participate in the world around us in this kind of love. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. As the writer of 1 John says, love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God. But everyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So all we do as Christians, all we do as followers of Jesus, we do for love because we have been so loved. That's the framework, that's the purpose, that's the orientation of the Sermon on the Mount and the last two sections that we have been in. In chapter 6, where we're moving today, Jesus shifts gears a bit, and at first glance, it can seem a little random what's happening in these moments. We've just had this very soaring conversation about what love can do, about what love can make possible, what kind of love Jesus is offering us. And then we come to this moment, And Jesus gets more narrow, and it's like, when you give, do it in secret. And when you pray, don't be showy. And when you fast, don't look hangry. Oh, and by the way, make sure you book an optometry appointment, because eye health is key. You're like, Jesus, what are you... What's the thing that you're doing here in this moment? You've just told us to love our enemies, and now you're like, you know, also, don't be showy. But what Jesus is doing in this moment, I think, is taking our conversation about the way of love, the life of love, and he is drawing it into a more personal and more intimate place. And he's asking us about our motivations, the direction and the orientation of our hearts. I think it's sort of like saying Jesus has just given us this picture of love, and then he looks at us and he says, so you want to love this way, But where is your heart aimed? What kind of love are you curating? What kind of orientation do you have? What is your intention, your direction, and your expectations? This is what Jesus says in verse 21 and 24 of chapter 6, which I think could be seen as sort of the purpose statements for this section. Jesus says in verse 21, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
And then in verse 24, similarly, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and you will love the other, or you'll be loyal to one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. You will live for what you love. You will pursue what you love. Your heart chases what it wants. So what do you want? Where is your heart aimed? If you love wealth, that's where your heart is aimed. That's what you will live for. If you love honor, respect, the admiration of others, you will live for it. But the thing that makes Jesus' words in this moment so tricky and so challenging is that he is telling us that we can be his disciples or we can act like his disciples. We can do the things of Christian discipleship, but if our heart is aimed towards another end, we'll still go to that other And you can pray, you can fast, you can give good, right, beautiful things, but for an aim that is other than him. The Bible scholar G.K. Beale says it this way. It's just a pithy and powerful quote. He says, we become what we worship for either ruin or restoration. This is even true when the means of our worship, the practices of our worship, look Christian. Even when the means of our worship look Christian, we can end towards something else. So where is your heart? What is the aim, the orientation, the direction, or the intention of your heart, that inner part of you? Jesus cares a lot about our hearts, our inner part. We see this all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and we see it through his teachings. For example, in Matthew 12, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think as that is true of our mouths, it's true for our whole lives. Out of the abundance of our heart, we live. Out of the abundance of our heart, we do our ethics. Out of the abundance of our heart, we chase. Out of the abundance of our heart, we live in the world around us. So what is inside of us, our inner lives, that secret part of us often determines our public demonstrations, our public witness. So what's inside of you? This is what Jesus told us about adultery last week earlier in this passage. He says this, if you've heard You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, every man who objectifies a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus is like, you act out of your heart. You act out of what you love. And your heart, it's your center of affection, your center of desire. And so Jesus is telling us, my followers are a people who aim, curate, disciple their hearts so that it results in the love of others. You're doing the work inside so that it lives into dignity for others. You are a people who experience love, grow into love day by day, so that love becomes your public demonstration, your witness in the world. So you want to be my followers? Where is your heart at? What kind of heart are you curating? What kind of love are you aimed at? So Jesus is focusing in on in chapter 6. What is going on in your heart? Where is it aimed? What kind of love are you curating? And I think this is very important for us to pay attention to for a whole lot of reasons. But the one that is on my mind the most is I think in this passage, Jesus is inviting us to look at our hearts, 
But more importantly, Jesus is inviting us into an inner vitality that leads to a public display of love. Or as Paul in Philippians 2 says, a public illumination of love. Paul in Philippians 2 says, you should shine like stars because of love. So Jesus is like, I want you to experience that in your inner being so that it might be true around you, through you, and for you. So where is your heart? Jesus starts off this section by naming this. He says this in chapter 6, verse 1, Be careful when you practice righteousness. It's a little warning about practicing righteousness. Be careful when you practice righteousness in front of others so as not to be seen by them. Righteousness, as we've explored in the weeks past, means very simply right relationship with God, with others, with self, and with the world. It's a right orientation, a right kind of relationship with yourself, with God, with others, and with what's happening in the world. So you could say very simply when Jesus says, when you practice my way, watch your heart. And then he illustrates this with three really interesting and challenging examples. And this is sort of what Jesus did when he was talking about the law in chapter 5. He uses three traditional, healthy, good Christian practices, sort of like case studies to show us what love does and does not do in these case studies. And in each of these examples, Jesus follows a very similar pattern. We're going to look at verse 2, verse 5, and verse 17, back to back, so you can see this pattern showing up. So verse 2, Jesus says this, When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Pay attention to that line. Verse 5, Jesus goes on to pray, and he says, When you pray, do not pray like the hypocrites pray. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen and noticed by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Final example. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces. They look hangry to show people that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. This is so interesting. Jesus is saying that you will receive the thing you want out of these practices. You will get the thing that you want out of these practices. You will receive what your heart is aimed at. If you want people to respect you, aim your heart towards honor, and you're going to get it. You want folks to think that you are holy? They probably will. You want people to be impressed by your discipline, by your church attendance, by how much Bible you know, by how often you pray, by how much you fast, by how good of a Christian you are. He's like, guess what? They'll know it. And that's it. You will get the thing that your heart longs for. So if you're in this work with me, if you want to follow me for spectatorship, for spectacle, for attention, for notoriety, you'll probably get it. You want people to think you're smart? Probably will. But then he goes on to add something that is just a doozy. He says in verse 19, your heart will get what your heart 
wants, but watch out because if you collect treasures on earth where moth, the NIV uses vermin, other translations use uh, rust, where moth and rust eat them and where thieves break in and steal them. Jesus says, you will get what your heart wants, but watch out. Some treasures do not hold up that well. If you want people to think highly of you, he's like, they will until they don't. You want people to think you're smart? Well, they will until someone smarter shows up and undoes it, and that will hurt. Trust me, as a person who wants to be smart, it does. <laughs> somebody asked me once, do you have any regrets? And I was like, no. And then immediately afterwards, I thought of one story where somebody knew more Bible than me, and I, I think about it like night and day. If you want to be smart, if you're in this game to be impressive, you will until you won't. And then it will be like moth and rust and vermin destroyed the treasure that you had placed your weight in. It'll be like someone stole it from you. And that'll feel like a million deaths. The writer, David Foster Wallace, who is not a Christian, but he has this beautiful and heartbreaking quote about what happens when we worship the wrong things that I want to read to you. He was giving this speech to a bunch of graduating college kids, which I think is very funny. Uh, And he says this, Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. The trick is keeping the truth up in front of daily consciousness. Wallace and Jesus are having a very similar conversation here about the places we put identity or hope. But whereas Wallace is critiquing maybe the most common idols of our heart, I think Jesus' words are so additionally challenging because he is not just interrogating what is out there. Jesus is interrogating our faith. He's not talking to to just anybody. He's talking to people who want to be his followers, people who want to be his people. And he's like, hey, watch out, people who want to follow me. Watch out, disciples. Watch out, Christians. This same thing can happen to you. You can drive the vehicle of spirituality right off the cliff of consumption. You can take these beautiful things that I've given you and you can make them idols that will wreck you. not just out here, it is just as much a reality inside of us. I think this is so challenging. I think for me, I I don't want to speak for you, but this is so challenging for me as a pastor who finds my career aligned with my faith. And there's all these things that are like really good and beautiful for a pastor to do. You want me to be praying, you want me to be reading, I think you do. You want me to be reading the Bible, I think, again, you want me to do that. You want me to be studying, you want me to be talking about Scripture, you want me to do these things, right? And they're beautiful and they're good, and it is such a privilege to get to do the work that I get to do. 
But I just have to confess, like, there are seasons when this becomes the treasure. And it is hard to tell the difference. You know what I mean? Like when I'm praying in order to be impressive versus when I'm praying to have an encounter with God, that line is thin. And when I'm reading, it's because I want to preach a sermon and I want you to be impressed versus when I'm reading because I want an encounter with God and I want you to have an encounter with God. That line is thin. These things are good. They are beautiful. They are right. And yet they will eat me alive like moth and rust if they are where I put my identity and my trust and my hope. If the purpose of this is my performance, Some ways, I think that was the gift of the pandemic to pastors. When nobody can show up the church, is it really worth it? <laughs> sort of forced renunciation. Religion, faith, it will eat us alive if it is not rooted and grounded in love. If it is not rooted and grounded in love, it will eat us alive and it will transform people around us into spectators and pawns for our religious performance. So not only have we been devoured by our religious performance, but we begin to use and devour the people around us for our religious performance. Instead of helping us grow higher and higher into love, the practices of our faith, when misaligned, will consume us. When they are aimed at lesser things, when they're aimed at identity, when they're aimed at security, they can become twisted. Which will cost us. This leads to the next thing that Jesus says in verse 22 and 23. It says, when you are aimed, when your vision, when your heart, when your eyes are on something else, then these religious practices can consume you. And he says this, the eye is the lamp of the body, which is a very confusing Hebrew idiom. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This is a bit of a confusing um, image that Jesus is using, but as I was researching what is happening in this moment, what I was mostly impressed by is that Hebrew people had a pretty sophisticated understanding of eyes, much more sophisticated than I did. Uh, Hebrews understood that eyes worked with light. Right, that your eyes absorbed light, and that's how you saw. And so they would say the eyes are like a lamp. When there's light, they get lit like a lamp does, like an ancient lamp. And so they give and enable you to see by that light. And so Jesus takes this example of how your eyes see to make this point, that your sight, your gaze, your direction your orientation, where you look, will direct your heart and your life. But what's really interesting about this example is the words that Jesus uses for healthy and unhealthy 
aren't about bodies. That's the way that we've translated it to make it really easy to understand. But the words that are used in this text are actually the words for generous and stingy. Where the generous eye and the stingy eye, or I think for our own context, just because we use this language more often, the words that we could use are abundance and scarcity. Which is really interesting. Where you look, where you direct your eyes, your heart and your life will go. So if you look towards scarce things, it will trap your heart in scarcity. If your eye is directed towards scarce things, to always being smartest, to always being the most honorable, to always being the most religious, to looking disciplined, to perceiving yourself as holy, he's like, you will see it, your heart will go there, and you will trap yourself in that kind of thinking. But the good news is also in this moment, if you look towards abundance, if you look towards goodness, if you look towards love, it will free your heart to live in love. If you look towards goodness, it will free your heart to live in goodness. That's why Jesus goes on, and we'll look at this next week in verse 33, to say, seek first his kingdom and these other things will be added to you. Where is your heart oriented? Or as he already said, Store treasures for yourself where? In heaven. Or how do we teach us to pray? Your kingdom come. Because if you look towards abundance, if your eyes are directed towards what is beautiful, what is holy, what is good, it will free your heart to live in goodness. He says, aim your heart towards love. Seek what lasts and you will be free. What is it that lasts? What is the treasure? Well, we've talked about this in the weeks prior, but New Testament scholar Scott McKnight gives us a good summary of what we've hit before. He says this, This means we are led to ask what lasts. And what lasts is love. In this, we can begin to focus on abundance. If we live to love God and others, if we pursue justice as the way that we're called to love others as God's creation, if we live out of a life that drives for peace is how loving people treat one another, and if we strive for wisdom instead of just knowledge or bounty, we will be free. He says, you want to be free? You want to live whole? You want to live my way? Then aim your heart towards what lasts, loving God, loving others, and loving yourself. And in this orientation, in this direction, your practice of the Christian life will be abundant. If love is our aim, if our eyes are directed towards what lasts, it frees us and transforms our practice. If our goal is love, love will meet us. If we get the thing that our heart desires, Jesus says, well, then if you desire love, you're going to get it. I've been reading uh, this month about the desert fathers and mothers who, when Christianity was legalized in Rome, their criticism of Christianity is that it began to lose some of its vitality. 
And so they fled to the deserts to seek lives of prayer and fasting and meditation and hospitality in order to kind of revitalize their own faith and their experience. I've been reading this just because I, I want that for my own heart, and I like to start the year on something more meditative. And there's this very funny story, uh, well, I, ho- I mean, I hope you think it's funny, and it's about two desert fathers talking, and they, they, they're always the title they give each other is Abba. So there's these two Abbas that are having a conversation, Abba Amon and Abba Anthony. And Abba Anthony is famous. He's St. Anthony in other contexts. He is famous for living in the desert and practicing hospitality, specifically love for the poor and for the sick. Becomes kind of his namesake. And he becomes very famous for it even when he is alive. And so Abba Amon comes to Abba Anthony and says this, my rule, my way of life, the discipline that I pursue is stricter than yours. How come your name is better known than mine? So what Abba Amon is asking, he's like, I I do more discipline than you. I pray harder than you. I fast more than you. I read my Bible more than you. I have a stricter way of life. I look at these practices that Jesus said here, and I do them more intensely than you do. So why do people know that you're loving? Why do you radiate with love and I'm over here, just hungry? This is what Abba Anthony answers. He says, it is because... I love God more than you. (laughs) What a thing to say. That's why I'm going to start answering questions that you guys have for me. (laughs) Where's the coffee? It's because I love God more than you. Uh, I love this story so much. And I, I wasn't there. So there might have been some hubris, might have been some arrogance. I don't know the vibe that was happening in this moment. But I love this story. Because I think it reveals the purpose of our Christian practice. Yes, Abba Amon had a strict way of life. Yes, he fasted. Yes, he prayed. Yes, he was disciplined. But he had lost the whole purpose of it. Loving God, loving others, and loving himself. And so it didn't matter. And Abba Anthony remembers the purpose, remembers the point. It is about the love, and so his life was radiant. It illuminated, shined like stars because he remembered the purpose of it. His eyes, his heart was directed towards what lasts, love. That's what Jesus is showing us in these three practices. You'll get what you want out of them. You'll get what your heart desires. So you want attention, you can have it, but watch out. That's a slippery slope. But just as Jesus had said, they'll get their reward. In the same way, he has another rhythm that he uses. And in verse 6, this is the other alternative. The alternative kind of reward. So if you want attention, you'll get it. But then he goes on to say this. But if you want something else, let me clue you in. When you pray, go to your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is present in that secret place. If you want attention, you're going to get it. But if you want an encounter with the living God, then that's what you're going to get. If you want to give because you want people to think that you are holy, He's like, they will. 
great. But if you want to give because you want an encounter with generosity, that's what you're going to have. If you want to fast because you want people to see you suffer so that they are impressed with you, you'll have it. But if you want to fast because you're holding on to hope and you want an encounter with God, God's going to see and meet you. Your Father who is present in that secret place will be present to you. This is so helping me reimagine and rediscover the purpose of these inner practices. I don't know what it's doing for you, but it, it is so transforming the way that I think about these inner practices. Instead of proving my holiness or being a checklist of things I need to do to be a disciple, they are about grounding me in love. And that, that revitalizes the whole thing to me. Like if the reason I hide away in a secret place is to have an encounter with a God of love so that I might love more, well then all of a sudden it's not a checklist, it's not a thing I need to do to be holy, it's a thing I want from my own heart because I would like to live in abundance. Jesus is like, I'm inviting you into the fullness of life, meet me in this secret place. I'm like, oh, I would like to go there. I would like to meet my father who is present in that secret place. Another desert father said it this way. I read this quote last week, but I can't stop thinking about it. Abba Moses said this, Everything we do, our every object as Christians, is undertaken for love. That's why we take on solitude, fasting, vigil, work. It's for why we practice the reading of Scripture. Together with all the other various activities, we do so, I love this, to rise step by step into the high point of love. These practices can be about appearing holy or they can be about raising step by step into the high point of love. And who does not want that? Reverend Dr. Martin King said that the Sermon on the Mount is an opportunity to inject a new dimension of love into our society, which I love that. We've talked about that quote a few times in the last couple of weeks. And as I think that is true of our society, I also think that Jesus is offering us in this moment an opportunity to inject a new dimension of love into our own hearts. To experience the kind of abundance that Jesus is imagining in the world around us, inside of us. And we say, we need this. Love is hard work. I don't know if you've ever tried to forgive anybody. It sucks. I don't know if you've ever asked for forgiveness. It sucks even more. <laughs> I don't know if you've tried to stop revenge. Jesus says, instead of a revenge, what if you stopped it in its tracks and forgave? Have you ever tried not escalating revenge in your mind when somebody has wronged you? I can't stop escalating revenge when somebody cuts me off on the freeway. I'll drive up right next to him and give him the eyes. Love is hard. Basic human decency is hard for me sometimes. 
It is hard to choose forgiveness over retaliation. It is hard. Jesus says, we read this already, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, treat people with such dignity that the relationship with you, you would have with them would be defined by respect. It is hard sometimes to dignify people who have hurt you, dignify people that you have learned to not dignify. Dying to self is hard. Renouncing self-righteousness is hard. So Jesus says, if you want to grow into the high point of love, hide away with me. Let me meet you in this secret place. To have an encounter with abundance that might step by step move you into the high point of love so that you can leave that secret place and witness to the abundance of the kingdom I'm making real in you. Acts of love always press us into vulnerable spaces, no matter how simple that act of love is. And vulnerability is tricky. Without work, it can produce fatigue, it can lead to resentment, it can induce shame in us. Vulnerability is a scary place to be. But these inner moments of giving, of fasting, of praying, they can be places of encounter where we look towards the abundance of God, grow into love. So that deeply grounded and held in love, we can leave into the world unafraid of our own vulnerability with the abundance to give to the world around us. There's this quote by Mother Teresa I've been thinking about a lot. She kept it on the back of her business card, which just shows you the kind of woman that she was. She says this, The fruit of silence is prayer. The fruit of prayer is faith. The fruit of faith is love. The fruit of love is service. And the fruit of service is peace. Think of a woman who did the work of experiencing inner abundance that her own life witnessed to abundance. I think that's why at the center of this conversation, Jesus gave us the prayer, the prayer that we read together, the prayer that we said together. We've talked a lot about this prayer in the past, so I won't spend much time on it. If you want to go listen to us talk about it, we preached on it like literally this time last year. I think this prayer is so powerful, especially in light of that Mother Teresa quote, because it is a prayer that does what we've just named. It's a prayer that grounds us, a prayer that orients our hearts, that directs our gaze, that's all about aligning our loves. You just look at the language of the prayer. Would you pop it up? Each moment of this prayer is about grounding us in love and orienting us rightly. It directs our gaze towards our Father and our collective relationship to a God who is safe to be approached like a Father. It orients our hearts towards His kingdom and His abundance. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It offers up our anxiety, our worry, our care. Please provide us our daily 
bread. It meets us in mercy so that we might, what, meet others in mercy. Forgive us as we have sinned so that we might, what, forgive those who have sinned against us. It hopes for, trusts in, asks for deliverance. Keep us from temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Jesus has just like waded through all of these ways in which these practices can consume and then he's shown us what can happen when they're oriented towards God and then he gives us this prayer right at the middle of it as a way of aligning our hearts, orienting our eyes, grounding our bodies so that we can experience God's love and then enter the world grounded in that love. We can seek first his kingdom and then extend it to the world around us. Matthew, I believe that Jesus is inviting us right now to experience this kind of inner vitality. A kind of abundance that leads step by step into greater love. Love of God, love of others, and love of self. So here's what I'd like us to do, Monsieur, today and all this week. This is not a hard challenge, but I think it's a worthy one for us to take up. This week, would you take this 10 minutes in your morning to pray Jesus' prayer? Some of you come from traditions where it's familiar to pray this prayer. Others of you come from a tradition where it's unfamiliar. So recognize kind of both what we bring and what we don't bring to this moment. So would you just take 10 minutes in the morning, pray this prayer over your day to orient your heart and your eyes and to ground yourself in love. Move slowly through it. You could say this prayer in like 10 seconds. Move slowly. Take deep breaths. Let it ground you in love and in purpose. Let it direct your eyes and your heart towards what lasts. So you might live in love and shine with that love. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray your prayer one more time. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Direct our eyes, direct our hearts, direct our hopes towards your kingdom coming. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, would you provide us our daily bread? Take up our needs, our worries, our anxieties, our fears, our concerns, but every single moment, would you take them in this simple, simple word, provide for us our daily bread? Jesus, would you lead us away from all the places where we often put identity and trust and hope that often consume us and destroy us? Would you lead us away from attention, spectacle, Deliver us from temptation and all the voices that meet us in those places so that we might know ourselves as grounded and rooted 
in you. For yours is the kingdom and the power forever and ever. Amen.